Breaking. Australia abandons democratic values. And the ideological accounting trick denying Australians advanced technology. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 8th of July, 2022. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, we're going to be talking about the foreign policy direction that Australia has um, is continuing to take, Craig, and it is very, very disturbing. And uh, yeah, well, we'll get into it, including what is a real um, terrible look when it comes to what democracy is supposed to stand for. Uh, secondly, we're going to discuss whether nuclear power is more expensive as the current government, is the most expensive form of power as the current government claims. Mm. All right, but before we do, um, remember, help us get the show around. And the best way to do that is like it, uh, share it widely. If you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. And if you do, hit the bell icon and also make comments, right? Let's get the, um, the dialogue going below. We try and participate as, as um, we can. We'll drown out all the Bitcoin ads. <laughs> um, all right, and also, Craig, uh, before we begin, I just want to um, mention up on our YouTube um, channel is the interview that I did last week with the former New Zealand Cabinet Minister, Matt Robson, about New Zealand's postal bank, Kiwi Bank, and how they got it. And the interview is called How Kiwis Fought Back Against the Private Bank Cartel and Won. And it's a really exciting discussion. I, I really loved having the doing the interview with Matt. Um, he has uh, it's an example. He, he he tells a story which is an example for Australians that you can win these battles. That's the most important thing. We're in a fight to to bring back public banking in Australia, and the best way to do that, the easiest way to do that, is establish a public bank that can operate through post offices because the the infrastructure is all there, right? Um, and everyone in Australia can have access to face-to-face um, -face banking services. You also see, Robbie, you know, the incredible interview because what, what Matt intersected was a lot of our work back in the 90s, which yeah, yeah. the research work you did in this whole neoliberal takeover of Australia through the Montpellier Society. Well, we did. I did the politics. You did the economic graphs. Yeah, I did. I did all that work too. I mean, that <laughs> was, was the first heavy duty work. They were the first colour graphs we ever printed in our publication, The New Citizen. So there was a whole lot of new technology being used then. But what was stunning was just the parallels between what Matt was going through in the actually on the ground in New Zealand because we did a case study of New yeah, Zealand. Yeah. Um, you know, Nazi reforms ripped New Zealand. I think the name of the tidy title was it Australia was Next. Australia Next, and of course Australia was next, or well, Australia was at the same time. But um, the point is that what what people will get from that interview is a, a very good historical perspective on the neoliberal takedowns of New Zealand, which are far worse than here in Australia, although. Australia finally caught up. But the other thing was was the sheer, sheer tyranny of the Labor Party mm. and how they were elected on one platform, yep. turned their back and went completely in opposite direction, which is why our discussion about you know, breaking Australian bands, democratic values is yes. so worrying <laughs> because is this really going to be the character of the Labor Party here, yep. turning its back on the actual true Labor values? No, exactly. And, and similar... Uh, to then, 
uh, it, there's, it's part of an international operation. Yes. New Zealand signed up to an international operation. That's why it, it, it turned its back on its own democratic promises. New Zealand Labor did back then and privatised the country to death. Um, we, we ended up copying, as you're right, but now there's a dip, there's a foreign policy agenda we're going to be talking about. So listen, please watch, if you haven't watched it, prioritise watching it. Allow yourself to see an example of how a political victory through persistence and sticking to principle is possible, right? Because we need to win that same fight here. And also, Craig, there's a frank discussion at the end about Kiwi Bank. It's not perfect, and it's, but, but when it was set up, with, by the people who did it, like Matt Robson, and it worked much better then when, it had, when, when those people set it on its path with their intention. Over time, New Zealand's had governments that have undermined it, right? So don't, when we promote a, promote a postal bank, don't go by what Kiwi Bank does now. Go by what it was set up to do. And the fact is, because it's still there, it can be quickly turned back to that, and we need to do that here. So yeah. it'll give you some deep insights into that sort of People know well. this is this is living history, Robbie. We actually live through this. Yes. And this is the point is to have a reflection as people need to know this history. Yep. If you don't know your history, you don't know what's possible. Both yep. from the good and the bad. No, exactly. All right, let's get into the main discussion though. Breaking. Australia abandons democratic values. And Craig, we have changed sides. Well, the public wouldn't know that, Robbie, but because of the uh, the hysterical you know, one-sided, you know, propaganda machine that's been running for, for, for a long time, particularly in the last six months. Well, that's why we're here, because um, we, we, ha we have to present the other side. And when I say we change sides, though, we are no longer on the side of democracies. And think about what I'm saying there. With this, this, when it comes to international events, what we've done in the name of democracy, right? Remember how we liberated... Us, Albo. Well... <laughs> That's true. We're going to be talking about Alvo. But I do use the collective we, the royal we, because oh, right. as Australians said, why do we exist? Why does our party exist? Because we take responsibility for our country's going and we are determined to change it. But, you know, Australia, we, we liberated, we liberated Iraq in the name of democracy, Craig. We liberated Libya in the name of democracy, Right. So what am I talking about? Well, that we I don't want to be a part of, Robbie, sorry. That's, that's true. That's why we're talking about this. So our new Prime Minister has just returned from his world tour, or as I called it, his world war tour, um, on which Albo, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, got into bed with a regime that has just banned 14 opposition political parties and ordered the confiscation of their property. The secret police of this regime have brought charges against all of these banned parties. Those charges, when you examine them, they violate the presumption of innocence. They involve collective um, punishment, all of which are completely um, uh, illegal under, under any normal law. And also and, illegal under EU law, which this particular regime is trying to get into bed with right now. Exactly. Now, in some cases, let me give a bit more detail. Um, some of these charges, Craig, are for things that aren't even illegal that they're being charged with. In some cases, they're charging the parties for statements made on social media years ago. They're being charged for that, including statements that advocated this regime, this regime should stop killing its own citizens, right? Um, the charges... Now, the reason they're, they're bringing charges is because they want to pretend this is being done legally, 
right? But it's all pretense. The charges are being heard in a court that is in a hostile region of the country for the people who are being charged. And seriously, if they attended the court hearing, they'd be in danger of being murdered. It's that hostile. So this is a total charade that's happened there, all, all um, to ban the 14 political parties and essentially crush opposition in this country. Yet in visiting this country, Prime Minister Albanese proclaimed that, quote, democratic nations like Australia will stand with it. Actions speak louder than words. And by condoning this regime, Albo is showing that Australia's commitment to so-called democratic values is completely fake. Craig, what regime am I talking about? Well, I think most of the people, Robert, that be watching this report, you know that we're talking about Ukraine. But his recent visit to Ukraine was you know, pledging an allegiance to a regime that actually does not, as we've just demonstrated, support democratic, so-called democratic values. But these democratic values, Robbie, you know, are, are only superficial amongst of course. The, the so-called democratic nations because this so-called democratic country, as you said before, was responsible for the invasion and destruction of Iraq, the support there, the, the, the total lies that are all done under democratic values. In other words, democratic values means if you're not prepared to support the existing financial monetary system that we have that's dictating... And the, and, the, and the global military empire that enforces it. You're not prepared, then you're not supporting democratic values. It's a joke. It's and, a joke. Well, and one of the most disgusting things you'll ever see written about democracy is um, by a, a, a British man named Dr Brendan Sims, who's a co-founder of a notorious think tank in the UK called the Henry Jackson Society, one of the one of the um, bastions of the neoconservative movement in the world. And the Henry Jackson Society um, the, uh, is good friends with people like Andrew Hastie here in Australia, the current opposition defence minister. Um, uh, in 2011, when the, the Libya intervention happened, this, this Dr Brendan Sims wrote an article said, democracy can be dropped from 10,000 feet. Mm. In other words, you can bomb a country into becoming democratic. This is, this, this, I, I deliberately provoke the audience with this use of the term democratic values. But in practical terms, Ukraine is crushing, absolutely crushing its opposition. And we, we, the collective we, elbow, our prime minister has the temerity, the gall, to pretend that our support for them has anything to do with democratic values whatsoever. It's a joke. Albo has been on this World War Tour. The most striking thing about his World Tour, Craig, so far, is that on foreign policy, he is determined to show he's no different to Scott Morrison. Yeah, that, this is an interesting point, Robert, because, look, that absolutely is the case. But look what happened. The election was November, uh, May 21st. He was on a plane three days later yep. to be wine and dined and wooed Bought this by this international regime in a way at the Quad in Japan. That was the Quad, Japan. but yeah. no, not just the Quad, but all the other meetings that he had around this. You have to think for a sec. You know, he a brand new prime minister, yeah. right? Comes in. You've got ten years of Scott Morrison's machinery in the background through the public service, through the DFAT, through you know this war machine. Actually, is what it is. And you've got a new prime minister coming in. Now, the only thing I'm hopeful for. Maybe it's a vain hope, I don't know, is that once he has time to settle down inside this country and say, look, this is not really what I want, 
he can then begin to change things. Now, things aren't, in, the, in the machinery of government, things don't just change overnight, unfortunately. You've got to really work things through. Now, I, maybe I'm being over-optimistic. But, but, but what you're alluding to, though, what you're, what you're talking about is that for he's had such an intense foreign policy um, uh, preoccupation in his first month as Prime Minister. This is like making sure... He's totally saturated in this perspective, so he keeps towing the line. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Now, yeah. the question is, you know, you've seen some good things come out of the, the early Labor government. You've seen the Bill of Wheeler family being returned. You've seen this recent discussion. The well, decision. Bernard Collier, the charges against this. Right. This now, what case what I'm saying is that when you've got 10 years of a neoconservative yep. government like the Scott Morrison government, which was so terrible, yep. you've got a brand new Prime Minister coming in. The question is, does Albo, does the Labor Party have the ability to transform itself to actually reverse these sorts of policies? Now, I don't know, but that's the question that our country well, is facing. Well, let me add some uh, ammunition to your suspicion there, Craig, because if you look carefully at what Scott Morrison said on election night, when he very readily um, declared defeat, right, and congratulated Albo on his win... He made it clear in his first few sentences that he was doing that. He wasn't dragging out the night. He was doing that because it was so important that Albo got on that plane to go to that quad meeting in Japan and sign up to what Biden's pushing in, in the Asia-Pacific. Look, right? look, this was Australia's position in the quad position in the world is so strategically important. We're part of Five Eyes and so forth, right? So they're going to try and, the, 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 they're going to try and protect that Yep. constellation, an array of alignments no matter what. Albo's one man, right? He's still a man, right? And we have to go back and look at what John Curtin did during World War II, where he actually turned, he said, we no longer look to Britain for our future, we've got to look to the United States. At that point, you had Franklin Roosevelt in the United States. You had an ability to... That was the right thing to do, yeah. To, to form an alliance with the United States. Now, what I'm saying, Robbie, is there's no excuses for Albo's behaviour. There's no excuses for what he's doing. But we actually can't just say, oh, you know, he's going to follow the same pattern as, say, Scott Morrison. It's true. Right now he is. So far he has, yep. Right? But what's, what is the potential for the change? But more importantly, how do we influence the changes for a better foreign policy in our country? What do you do out there, the viewer? What do you do towards making this change a possibility? Because he is a political figure, and the political figures always respond to the public if the public is loud enough. Well, the, well, the first step is to know what's actually happening. And um, so we're going to go through that now in, in a bit of detail. Know what's actually happening and know where the, the influences are coming from so that we can take it on. And that's why we do these shows. That's why we, what we're going to go through is out of as usual, the uh, weekly magazine, the Australian Alert Service. We can't do justice to it on the show. If you, if you want a copy, call in, and um, if you haven't had one before, you can get a free copy, or you should subscribe to this. That also helps our party. Um, but, but listen to the details of what has been unfolding, because we have to take this on, right? So anyway, just to, yeah. there's a lot of... So far, though, the universal view is that um, elbow has been no different so far. And, and what you're referring to is there's a lot of pressure to make sure he's no different. And, and so far, the pressure's worked. In fact, one comedian on Insiders, I, I, I cracked up when I heard this. He said, he, it was so striking to him. He said, um, it's like we're selling an, a new margarine on the world stage, 
in the form of elbow, and it's called "I can't believe it's not ScoMo." <laughs> um, now here's but let's get let's be let's be frank. Let, let's talk about the Ukraine thing because we've shown ever since February and, and earlier that well not just earlier you and I were on this forum back in 2014 exposing the coup that happened in Ukraine then the Nazi coup right that that set up set in train everything that we're dealing with now. Um, so back in back in February though, um, Anthony Albanese in Parliament then declared uh, in opposition declared his full support for the same Ukraine regime, but in doing so he cited his meeting with the Australian, who is the the global head. There's an Australian named Stefan Romanu. He's the global head of the organisation of Ukrainian nationalists Bandera. And that is an organisation that was founded by the notorious Nazi collaborator, Stepan Bandera. So just watch what Elbo said in Parliament. Last Friday, I met with the chairman of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations, Stefan Romanyu, and other Ukrainian community leaders in Melbourne. And I indicated to them Labor's clear position of solidarity with the people of the Ukraine and our absolute rejection of any Russian military action that violates Ukraine's sovereignty and its independence. Yeah. All right, let's, let's, so that's, he was referring to Stefan Romanyu, right? Now, here's a, here's a um, picture of Stefan Romanyu at an organisation of Ukrainian nationalist Bandera event, and you can see Bandera's picture behind him, right? This guy is the global head of Bandera's organisation. All right, here's another picture you can see. This is from 1941. This is from the Wikipedia entry on Bandera. And that arch says, Heil Hitler, long live Bandera, because he was a Nazi collaborator. And that's all being whitewashed now and, and spun in all sorts of different ways, but that was the truth. And his group massacred Jews and massacred Poles. And in fact, just as an aside, um, Ukraine's ambassador... Or one of one of Ukraine's, I think it was the ambassador just the other week, in Poland, defended Bandera publicly, and the the Polish government had to publicly tell him off because it was it was Poles that Bandera massacred, mm. right? Anyway, so so you know um, there's trouble in paradise. The, they they can't keep these these um, these myths uh, for too long. So the next image, this is. This is the 2014 Euromaidan protest site in Kiev, which is what led to the, which is where the coup was was launched that the Americans backed, where the Americans literally handpicked the government, and you can see the big photo there of the so-called peaceful Maidan protesters of this Nazi Stepan Bandera, and what did that do? Because that because these actual Nazis, heirs of Bandera organised a coup that the Americans backed and then the Americans hand-picked the government. The, the, you can hear the voice recordings of Victoria Nuland, the, 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 secretary, the, the uh, Undersecretary of State, with the American ambassador to Ukraine saying, this guy will be the Prime Minister, not that guy. Blah, blah. They picked the government. America ran this coup. The Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the East refused to recognise the legitimacy of that government. That's what led to the war that, that's been going on for eight years, where um, these, and, and, and on the Ukrainian side, it's these, it was neo-Nazi regiments 
that were the main um, fighters in that war against the Russian-speaking Ukrainians. They, they, they stopped the Russians being able to speak their own language. They, they got rid of Russian as, as an official language of um, Ukraine. Um, Zelensky was elected on a platform of peace and, and on a platform that Ukraine should abide by the, the, the attempt to establish peace, which was called the Minsk Accords, which Uk- the Ukrainian side repeatedly kept breaching. That's, Zelensky was elected, Craig, on a platform of implementing those, right? Um, but he failed. And now he is turning around and banning the political parties whose only crime has been to say... These, some of these political parties are not even pro-Russian. They're pro-Ukrainian, but they're anti-Nazi and they're anti-corruption. And they're being banned simply for saying, Ukraine, in the last few years, Ukraine should abide by the, P- the Minsk Accords. Yep. Right? That's, that's what's happening um, in Ukraine. That's what Albo is fully um, signing up Australia to. Right, supporting that dirty operation to keep it going. Um, now he did this this visit to Ukraine while he was um, on his trip to Europe to a NATO meeting, right, where he paid tribute to NATO alongside our neighbour, um, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. They these two have shown, Craig, that they are both signed up to the NATO strategy. And what's the NATO strategy? The NATO strategy is fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. And I want to play a quote. This is, this is yesterday, today's Friday, yesterday on Sky News. Albanese said this in moralising about, you know, it's all done in moral terms. Ukraine's pure as the, as the, as the driven snow. Russia is the, the most evil entity that's ever existed in the history of the universe. Right? It's all this garbage. Um, but look what Albo said about what he's willing to sign Australia up to support. Uh, If uh, Ukraine doesn't prevail in the current conflict, if Russia doesn't withdraw uh, from its brutal invasion, uh, the consequences are are dire uh, if if that does not occur. So the world has to be uh, determined uh, to see this through. So, Craig, when he's saying... This has to be seen through to the end. This is fight Russian, fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. That's what it is, right? Now, Jacinda Ardern, buying onto the same thing, she goes, she goes and she, she yesterday, she was at the Lowy Institute and she gave an address and she, her address was to justify her support for Ukraine and she had to do it in a slightly more clever way than Albanese because her support for Ukraine goes against New Zealand's own tradition of foreign policy independence. And what the New Zealanders have been very careful to do for a long time is when it comes to international affairs, only operate through the UN, right? So support UN initiatives. Do not go outside of the UN framework because the UN gets to define what is international law, right? So listen to her justification for going outside of the UN in order to support Ukraine. We cannot be left unable to respond to global challenges because we encounter dysfunction or, worse yet, moral failings. In recent times, there has been no better example of that than the failure of the UN to appropriately respond to the war in Ukraine because of the position taken by Russia in the Security Council, a morally bankrupt position on their part, in the wake of a morally bankrupt and illegal war. 
under these circumstances, waiting for our multilateral institutions to act was not an option for New Zealand. And here's the thing. What she's saying is, oh, the UN has failed. Therefore, you know, the Security Council fell apart. Well, I want to make two points about that in response to this, to, to Jacinda Ardern. This is the person, this, this very, you know, Jacinda Ardern has this glamorous reputation on the world stage, right? This person um, deliberately chose in 2007, note that date, 2007, she chose as a New Zealand Labor member to go to the United Kingdom and work for Tony Blair. After, four years after, he had orchestrated the invasion of Iraq against international law, undermining the UN Security Council and setting in train a, the, what I call, still call the war crime of the 21st century, the deaths of a million people. This guy is a soulless monster. And she chose to go and work for him. And in fact, she now tries to um, brush that aside, cover that up quite. She doesn't like being reminded that she worked for Tony Blair. That's her commitment, true commitment to international law. Um, second, I, this is just for historical benefit. This reference to the UN Security Council and bagging Russia. Let me tell you that... The UN Security Council, Julie Bishop used to carry on about this, the UN Security Council has become dysfunctional. Here's why it became dysfunctional. In 2011, the Libya intervention that we talked about earlier, Russia made a grave mistake. And its mistake was it accepted the assurances of the United States that the intervention in Libya, supposedly to stop this massacre that was never real in the first place, would not lead to regime change. And by accepting that promise, Russia didn't use its veto power at the Security Council. It didn't use it, right? It said, okay, we, it just, it just um, abstained from voting at the Security Council. Obama lied. That intervention turned into, second only to, in terms of an international atrocity, second only to Iraq. Libya is now a failed state. It is a disaster. This was one of the most rich and advanced countries in Africa. And it is the basket case now. And of course, you know, all the refugee flooding, refugees flooding Europe from North Africa, etc., all came in the wake of what they did to Libya. And Russia has learned from that experience and has never, ever, ever, ever trusted the United States and the United Kingdom and these liars again. And they repeatedly use their, their veto for that reason. That's why we say it's no dysfunction. No, we did it. We did it. So... Let's, let's, let's go on, Craig. Albanese at the NATO summit did something else because we talk, we've been talking about Russia. But I can tell you now, when it comes to the world stage, um, Russia's copping a lot of stick at the moment. But, there's, but Russia is not the main preoccupation of the Anglo-Americans. Now, Robbie, uh, can, I want to jump in here and give people a context of why this is happening because, you know, Putin made a speech recently where... Uh, he, he elaborated on how there is an entire enormous grouping of countries with an enormous population that are now coming to the fore and threatening the hegemony of the Western system, yep. right? Now, he, he, he said, look, you know, the, the BRICS Plus, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa group have been functioning for, I think, it's 12 years now. And they're now putting together an organisation called BRICS Plus, which means other countries to come in. Now, and yeah, two of those countries, this is amazing, 
two countries that have applied are Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yes. Two bitter enemies both want to join BRICS. And he made the point that this grouping of countries represents something like 3.3 billion people. Yeah. Yet the G20, the G7 and so forth, and that grouping of countries represents a mere 770 million. Now, if you want to have peace in the world, you have to allow all countries to participate in the development of policies and the development of their nations. That is not what's happening in the West. The West is saying, no, you have to go with the rules-based order, which is, in other words, you have to follow the Western dictates. And they have a minority grouping of countries with a minority population saying to the world, <laughs> you're going to follow our dictates. Now, that is the idea of empire. It's the old British empire idea of, of, of the control of many by the few. And, and I, look, we have to be tr truthful. It's the idea that the white world and should rule it. the whole world. Exactly. And that's what you've got. You know, this is the background. So when Putin, Putin understands this. He's a very smart guy, right? When he went into the, you know, the special military operation in, into Ukraine, it wasn't to you know, decimate and take over Ukraine. It was to protect the Donans and the Luhansk areas where you had had eight years of fighting because the people there said, we don't want this Nazi operation. And what the, the lies that are coming out of the Western media have been absolutely full on. I mean, they the worst sort of propaganda that we've ever seen in my lifetime. You look at these, these towns around the, these regions and they say, oh, the implication is, oh, the Russians have done this just in the recent period. No, this is a result of eight years of devastation and, in, in, you know, in, in, in a sense, like civil war inside these towns, inside these countries. And if you believe the propaganda, it was all done by Russia. It ain't true. And the giveaway, Craig, from the media standpoint, this propaganda thing is every time they talk about what's going on in Ukraine, they call it the brutal, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, which implies that what we did in Iraq, what we did in Libya, what we've been doing in Syria is somehow not brutal. <laughs> like when we do it, our bombs float down on rainbow clouds, right, and gently kiss the earth. No, war is hell. They pushed it to this point. We've gone through this before in the show, but what the media stuff is just pure propaganda. And it's all, I, when, when, when the leaders and the media cannot talk about this subject without overlaying the moralizing of it, right, that's when you know you're being propagandized. So this entire new so-called rules-based order is coming under threat. The financial system is coming under threat because this larger grouping of countries is now coming up with the idea of an alternative financial system. Yep not just the, the, the unipolar United States dollar system, they're talking about forming you know, baskets of currencies in order to underpin their, 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 their financial system. So this is the threat that's coming up. And of course, China has played a crucial role in this in the sense of what they've done through the Belt and Road Initiative and their participation in the Brits. So of course, the Western alliances around NATO that are attacking Russia now as a de facto war in Ukraine, uh, using Ukraine as the, you know, the, the cannon fodder, literally, are now saying and coming out saying, oh no, but China's now the threat, right? Yep. And we've seen in this country a complete transformation, a turnaround in the last several years where the same Western-backed NATO countries are now coming into this region to now foment war with China. And it's putting us on the front line. We are going to come the cannon fodder for a war against China, just like Ukraine is being used as 
cannon fodder for this de facto war against Russia. And, and re remember, I did an interview with former Australian Ambassador uh, John Lander, who made that exact point. He lays out very clearly, um, and have a look at that. It's from a few months ago. So yeah, you're right. But the, the other thing to come out of NATO was this pronouncement that China's a threat. You had this week, you had the head of the... Uh, they, the media report this like it's, like it's not orchestrated. You had the head of the FBI and the head of MI5 <laughs> getting together and give a joint press conference saying China is the threat. And it's like, oh, if those two are doing it, boy, it must be serious. No, if those two are doing it, that's how you get propagandised. Right? And that shows how desperate they are, Robbie. For sure. In order to push this particular agenda on the, the, the stupid and dumb Australians that want to believe this crap without looking behind the scenes. And so far, Albanese has gone completely along with it. Um, and so, yeah, taking on board, people should take on board what you said before because we have to change it and, and, and um, uh, not assume it can't be changed. But so far, he, he has. And I, and I want to play this one last clip on this subject. Um, which should, if, if Albo had any shame, it would embarrass the hell out of him. But this was uh, Andrew Hastie, the same Andrew Hastie before, who's pals with the Henry Jackson Society that brag about bombing countries and democracies. This was Andrew Hastie on um, uh, Sky News on Sunday talking about how Albo's going with his foreign policy. Roll the tape. Well, when you've got the Chinese uh, newspapers online condemning Mr Albanese, uh, for being no different from his predecessor, Mr. Morrison, uh, he's he's obviously continuing on with our, our policy. This is Robbie. When your enemies praise you, you're in trouble. I mean, this yeah, this is well. We, did, look, hit, Craig. Did most people think before the election that Albanese would take a different tone on these matters because Dutton was so crazy, Hasty was so crazy, and now these guys are saying. Hey, baby. Um, you're as crazy as I am. Yeah, you're as crazy as I am. <laughs> All right. Now, actually, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm, um, we're going to go through a few other things, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to reference it. There's an article in this week's Australian Alert Service that um, with, uh, Biden's Asia SAR driving Australia to war with China. I recommend people read that article. It, it, it profiles the guy who's giving a Obama, not Obama, Biden, uh, who are we talking about? Albo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's given Albanese essentially his talking points on this matter, right? Um, and we're going to talk about that in future weeks. But I think we've covered that uh, subject well enough now um, because we've got to get on to, for the sake of time, to uh, other matters. I mean, just, just to highlight what you're saying, Rob, this goes back to the Wolfowitz Doctrine, goes back into the 90, early 1990s, a doctrine that's basically brought, brought in this rules-based order where you have, to have a, you have to have a unilateral not a multi, a unilateral, not a multipolar world. And this has been forced. We've talked about it a lot for the last 30 years. Well, well, let's be clear, Greg. The doctrine is we, America, will not ever tolerate the rise of a rival economic or military power. That's, That's right. the doctrine, right? Where with the, the, with the British in the background, by the way. Yeah, where the rules-based order comes in is that in order to uh, make that look palatable, they say that what they call their order is a rules-based order, except be clear, it's where they make the rules. And so, as you said, when there's 3.3 billion people wanting a different economic system, they say that's a threat to our rules-based order. And what they really mean is that's a threat to our total global dominance. That's correct. And, and that attitude is going to see the world head into a nuclear war. 
And in fact, Craig, that was a warning by Hugh White, the former Undersecretary of the, um, the Australian Defence Department, um, who gave a presentation last night at the Australian Institute of International Affairs in Brisbane, which I want, which I watched. He's been saying that for a long time. We've been saying that for a long time. That attitude is leading the world to nuclear war. And if you don't want that outcome, take seriously what we're saying. All right. <clears throat> um, let's move on, Craig. Yep. I'll clear my throat. <clears throat> don't know why that's happening. Uh, okay. The ideological accounting trick, denying Australians advanced technology. Um, the original title was Energy Security. You've seen me change that, except I... I we need to actually look at nuclear power for what it is. It is advanced technology. But let's go through this briefly. I want to play a clip, another clip on this one, um, because on the 9th of June, in the middle of a cold snap, when the whole East Coast electricity system went haywire, you, everyone remember that? I was in Brisbane at the time, luckily. It was a bit warmer up there. Um, on the 9th of June, uh, what's his name? The new energy minister, Chris Bowen, was asked at a press conference about the coalition having just put up the strong suggestion that in discussing Australia's energy system and the parameter of having to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, go to net zero, right, we should look at nuclear power. That was the suggestion from the opposition. And Chris Bowen said this. What's your response to the coalition push for Labor to explore nuclear energy? Oh, seriously, a couple of points. Nine years in office, and they're coming up with bright ideas on the, on the other side of the election, point one, no credibility. Point two, nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. We have a cost of living crisis, energy prices going through the roof, and what's their big bright idea? They say, let's, let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of. Let's come up with the most expensive form of energy and let's put that in the system because that's going to make power prices cheaper. They want that debate? They really want to argue that? Bring it on. It's, a, it's a just a complete. All right, so I've got a few things to say about that, Craig. First of all, he's dead right about the coalition. What a bunch of weaklings. They'd been in government for whatever it is, nine years. It was a coalition government, by the way, John Howard, who passed the law to ban nuclear power generation in Australia. We're the only country that bans it. And a coalition government did that. And the minute they're out of opposition, when they had umpteen chances to change it, because they banned it in 1999, they had umpteen chances to change it. And of course, they're too gutless to. We, our party, have long, we are not a vested interest um, at all on this. We just understand the benefits of nuclear power. We've, we've, we, don't, we have long taken on public opinion on this question and frankly helped to shift it. But they're too gutless to do that. The minute they're out of opposition, out of government, bang, oh, let's have nuclear power. Yeah, we've, been, we've, we've said Australia must go nuclear for, for decades, Robbie. And look, look, what's astonishing is... Do you know what process in our entire galaxy is the most natural? Is it solar panels? No. Wind power? No. Nuclear power? It's nuclear processes. I mean, we've got a whole, we've got a huge sun up there, which is nothing much, nothing more than a huge ball of nuclear fusion yep. operations, right? You look around the hundreds and millions of different uh, suns around the universe and they're, un they're uncountable. Billions, it's trillions. Billions, right? They're all nuclear processes. So if that's the... You don't In fact, isn't it true fire is, that, is unique to Earth? Yes. It's the only we, place it exists. Right. So why is it that we have to say, oh, no, we can't use nuclear processes when it is a character of the galaxy? 
and also a character of human creativity that we figured out how to do it. That's the point, is yeah. that we can harness the, 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 the underlying physical principles that exist in the galaxy and use that for the, the, the concentration of energy in the most efficient ways in order to govern other processes that we as human beings need to survive. Yep. And, and this is what really annoys me about the whole climate change argument, Robbie, is that when you start talking about climate change, or they start talking about it, they completely write out the fact that we are one small planet in an entire galaxy with enormous amounts of energy hitting our planet from not just the sun, but from you know, cosmic radiation, cosmic from radiation and so forth, and none of that is discussed in terms of the effect on our climate. And it does. There is climate change happening, but it's not from anthropogenic, you know, man-made climate change. It's from these huge processes, huge amounts of energies coming in from outside our uh, our atmosphere that are governing processes that we want to ignore. And well, when, when you say we, again, not, I'll, not, I'll take no, exception no, sorry. now. <laughs> not, not the royal No, there's a, there's a political agenda around climate change that wants to reduce it all to one thing, which is CO2. And there's lots of climate scientists saying, no, no, don't, that's way too simplistic. However, Craig, let's take them at their word in terms well, of what... Let's, okay, let's what, do it. What they, what they think they want to achieve here, right? The, the best processes to deal with climate change in, the, in their axioms, which we don't support, is nuclear power. Well, and let's prove it. So he's said, he's made a clear statement. Nuclear power is the most expensive form of energy. That You heard it. Is that true? Well, let's go through it. First, there's two parts to this. There's a physical component and there's a financial component. Let's look at the physical component first. Nuclear has this one characteristic that by any definition means it cannot be the most expensive form of power because it's this thing called energy density. Now, its energy density is extraordinary. Solar, wind, they're free, yes. They fall on the earth, that fuel doesn't cost a cent. But harnessing it is a big deal, it takes a lot of infrastructure. Why? Because it's so diffuse. And a lot of energy to create the infrastructure. So, and I'll give you an example of the actual levels of energy we're talking about. Solar, the, sun, the maximum energy of the sun shining on the earth at the equator is about 0.001 megajoules per square metre per second. So get that, 0.001 megajoules per square metre per second. Wind is a bit more energy dense than that. Wind has, global average wind kinetic energy per square metre is about 1.5 megajoules um, per square metre, right? Uh, now, so those are two uh, calculations there are megajoules. 0.001 for solar, 1.5 for wind. Compare that to coal. Coal has energy density of 24 megajoules a kilogram. That's why it's been the dominant power source for a long time, for centuries. Oil is even greater. When oil came along in the 19th century, right, it changed everything for this reason. It has 44 megajoules per kilogram. Of energy that's the that's the energy in oil but then nuclear when we discovered that blows them all away so oil and i think gas might be slightly higher than oil but just it's in the 40 to 50 range that's megajoules per kilogram what is what is nuclear one kilogram of uranium in a fast water in a light water reactor which is a standard operator operating reactor uranium has an energy density of 500 
1,000 megajoules per kilogram. And the energy conversion jumps by a factor of 56 if you put in a fast breeder reactor to 28 million uh, megajoules per kilogram. You cannot match it. Now, in practical terms, what does that mean? We're going to have a look, quick look at these graphs we're going to run here. It means that um, the quantities of physical materials to fuel and build various forms of power generation, it tops them all. So just, let's just take fuel. Have a look at this chart. 10 grams of uranium oxide is equivalent to one tonne of coal, 450 litres of oil, or 481,000 litres of natural gas. Or put another way, a one gigawatt nuclear power plant produces the same power as 939 wind turbines. Imagine how much area that would have to cover. Um, or 11 million solar panels. 11 million. It, you get the equivalent from one, a one gigawatt power plant that's, in, that's situated in a few acres. This, one, this next one, Craig, I think is probably, it's the more practical one people have to understand. Construction materials by source, tons per megawatt hour. Nuclear uses less than 10,000 tonnes of construction material, and that is cement, concrete, glass, steel, other, per megawatt hour of energy produced, whereas wind uses 100,000 tonnes and solar uses more than 160,000 tonnes. There's no comparison. And so in those constructions, it's the things you've got to build to harness the energy, this is a lot more expense in those other forms of energy. And that's just the purely physical parameters so far that we're talking about. What we've identified in the, this article in the alert service, though, is there's also an accounting trick. And um, I'll just go through this quickly because we're, we're running out of time. But in Australia, when he says nuclear is the most expensive form of energy, that is, in, that is in agreement with, a, with the 2016 South Australian Royal Commission on the Nuclear Fuel Cycle. That was a, that's probably, you know, a Royal Commission has a lot of kudos, right? This was the most authoritative political slash official examination of this issue. And that Royal Commission looked at everything to do with nuclear, whether it's applicable to Australia, had a lot of positive things to say about it, but then it said that nuclear power is not commercially viable. That's what it said. Nuclear power is not commercially viable. And when we read the fine print, Craig, that assumed, this is the quote, a commercial cost of capital of 10%. Now, that's in other words, a 10% interest if you borrow if, if the commercial company, the private company building the nuclear power plant borrows it, right? Um, according to the World Nuclear Association, here's a quote for you, the cost of financing is a key determinant of the cost of electricity generated. So they're saying, look, of all the factors involved in nuclear, the cost of financing is pretty, pretty much the biggest one. And the South Australian Royal Commission said, assumed that it'll take 10%, uh, require 10% interest, which is a heavy cost of financing. But we asked this question, and we've gone through this recently on our show. Why should, why should it be assumed that a nuclear power industry for Australia should be commercial? Hmm. Until the 1990s, all electricity generation infrastructure in Australia was never done commercially. It was always done by governments who invested um, long-term at the lowest possible rates of interest, and that's how we became an advanced economy. Why can't we use take that approach to nuclear? Because if, if, if the South Australian Royal Commission had have assumed that, that this would be a government project, you compare the 10% interest rate tag it put on its, its conclusion that it's not viable to what the government bond rate was at the time of that Royal Commission in 2016. The government bond rate was lower than 
That's the amount of money, that's the interest rate the government borrows at, right? If, if the Royal Commission had put that um, metric on, there's no way they could have said it's not commercially viable. Now, the other thing that, El that uh, Chris Bowen claims is that renewables and uh, uh, renewables are the cheapest form of energy. So where does that come from? There's an organisation called the uh, International Renewable Energy Association. They have a report from 2020, which was the first time they, came, they, 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 cl they claimed in this 2020 report, for the first time ever, nuclear, uh, sorry, renewable energy is the cheapest electricity in the world. And they base that on, they, they literally average all the prices of electricity all around the world. They average them out and they claim, oh look, nuclear, sorry, nuclear, renewables are the cheapest. So you've got to read the fine print. These are big, thick, thick, thick reports. Our job, you know, we do go and read the fine print. That was, get this, that, that claim was supported by the fact that that year there were three solar panel projects in the Arabian Peninsula, in Qatar, in UAE, and in Saudi Arabia, where they, the bid price, the contract price, was less than two cents a kilowatt hour. Less than two cents. And that is really, really cheap electricity. But then the report said, and this is, this, is, this is the giveaway, what is required to achieve these exceptionally low prices is the convergence of all of the factors that could drive costs to their lowest levels. And what were those factors? Well, the first one is you're talking about the Arabian desert, right? So the best possible, the maximum heat, and these are, these are you know, UAE, Saudi, these are, these are, they're supplying cities with electricity right beside the city, right, where it's desert. So that, that's, that helps, but that's not even enough. The other point they say is these are government electricity systems. And as government electricity systems, they make the point that means they can borrow at the cheapest rate because they're the lowest default risk. And what's that rate? They said at um, 3%. 3%. So in other words, to claim that renewables is the cheapest, they assumed government systems with the lowest possible financing rates, whereas in Australia, to claim that nuclear was the most expensive and not viable, they assumed private systems with the most expensive financing rates. So what happens if you assume that nuclear can be done at the, by governments at the lowest financing rates? Well, the, the, um, the OECD has a nuclear association. They've looked at this and they have said, the quote from them is, um, this, is, this is their absolute finding. Um, they said at 3%, here's the quote, nuclear is the lowest cost option for all countries. And that's now since been backed up, Craig, by the International Energy Agency, which says, which is, they, just, they just put out a report last month, June 2022. Quote, achieving net zero, this is so in, in the terms of Chris Bowen's goal, Achieving net zero globally will be harder without nuclear. And then here's the zinger. Less nuclear power would make net zero ambitions harder and more expensive. <laughs> so here's my question to, to Chris Bowen is this. You can only deny that nuclear is the cheapest by sticking with this privatised free market energy system in Australia, which is an ideological one, ideological position. What are you more committed to, Chris? The, 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 the ideology of a free market energy system, which has screwed us up and, 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 and made our, our electricity more expensive across the board, or your net zero goals? 
because if you achieve, if 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 you're um, what you've said means you're you're more committed to the um, uh, the ideological system. Robbie, I just want to say there's two things. First of all, Sydney Harbour Bridge would never have been built under the current ideology of finances, right? Because you know JJC Bradfield and Jack Lang together went outside the existing financial arrangements to get that thing built, right? And that was it was an absolute you know engineering masterpiece at yep. the time. But it was their creativity, and they're not accepting the existing financial arrangement. Mean, they went to they tried to get financing out of London. They wouldn't get the banks there wouldn't give it, so they went to the United States. All sorts of things like that. The other thing is that we're talking about projects, you know, building nuclear power stations that'll last for decades. Well, up and to a century, actually. This, they're, they're incredible. And, and the point is that you're talking about if you're talking about using accounting tricks for short-term profit for shareholders in the privatised yeah. system. Of course it's not going to be cheap yeah. because you've got a private interest, a private company trying to maximise the return for private individuals. If you have a government-owned entity that's responsible for the, for, and accountable for the country as a whole and for its citizenry, you do it at the cheapest possible price where the profit is the, the, the uh, increase in energy that goes into the system so that people can have cheap heating in their homes. The industry can survive with cheap electricity. Electricity and energy sources should never have been privatised. They should not be in private hands. We are calling for the renationalisation of yep. the entire electricity, you know, energy system and systems in this country. Without that underlying cheap electricity and then development of nuclear power, so you've got copious amounts of cheap energy, you know, our country and our economy will crumble. Instead of the private sector making profits out of providing this essential... This what is, is a parasitical economy. It's absolutely essential... That should be provided for everybody, yes. and the private sector can make profits from the things you can do with electricity. Yes, right. Go start a factory or whatever, but yeah. the actual provision of electricity should be done the most cheaply. Craig, two other things quickly um, because we don't get to cover it all, but um, you know, the, 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 there's two other things about nuclear power. The two concerns people have: safety and waste. They are dealt with. They are, they are, they're solved technologically, right? Look, look that up. We'll do more more. Um, presentations that in the future. There's plenty of information you can find out about that. Um, but why why is nuclear so much so better than like um, uh, than even coal and oil? Right. There's other technological benefits from nuclear. You get these things called isotopes that you can use for industrial processes, right? And, and advanced industrial processes. You get this thing called process heat because these are high often operate at very high temperatures. And industry can have the direct heat from that. You can have cheap water desalination, all sorts of things. You don't, you know, a solar panel and a, a windmill do, does one thing. Well, the, well, the windmills do two things. They, they produce electricity and they chop up birds. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, that's all they do, right? Whereas nuclear, um, you know, tucked away in, in um, manageable places, etc., with all the proper features uh, 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 and, can, and can be put anywhere, are a much better option for um, electricity provision long term. And Australia has one great advantage. We have most of the world's uranium, yeah. right? And thorium. Right? And thorium. Yeah. And we should be advancing into that. Yeah. But anyway, that was just to put to bed this myth that was getting around Australia by um, uh, Mr uh, Bowen. And it's something that should probably be shared with the uh, Teal Independent. So with the Post Office Bank, Robbie, that's one of my major campaigns. The other one, of course, is we've got to have a nuclear energy industry in this country. Because we Absolutely. need energy security and advanced technology. That's right. All right, run out of time. Craig, thanks very much for joining yeah, us. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks to the viewers. Sorry for the long show, but hopefully it's been informative. Um, 
work with us on the Postal Bank campaign. Look for the details below and tune in next week for more. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.